Thank you so much, choir. Hey, just a note, some, some churches are very committed to uh, only being a, a traditional service where there's choirs and hymns and some of the classical elements, not doing much of the contemporary music that we were singing earlier. Some other churches are very committed to being only a progressive service where they wouldn't have a choir or anything like that. We want the best of both worlds. And so we got to experience both of those together. Can we celebrate the choir one more time that adds that? All right. We are, uh, began last week a series on families, and we began by looking at a, a very old and ancient family from the Old Testament way back in Genesis 27. If you have brought your Bibles, wonderful, I want to encourage you to, to bring your Bibles. If you don't have one, you can take one from underneath the seat. That is our gift to you. Um, and, um, or you can find a Bible if you've not brought your own. But we're going to finish the, that chapter with Isaac and Rebecca, the parents, and, um, and Esau, the older brother, and Jacob. And we saw how there was some pretty unhealthy family dynamics that were taking place with Isaac and Rebekah. In fact, um, Isaac was going to give all his blessing to the oldest son Esau. That was his favorite, his favored son. And his wife, Rebekah, conspired with her younger son, Jacob, to steal the blessing. So Jacob, essentially, while Esau is out hunting for the meal that he'll give his father, he sneaks in, disguises himself, and steals the family blessing from Esau. And we're going to read the results of that not very healthy thing. I was thinking about the family and realizing how messy and difficult and challenging families can be. I'm sure not your family, but other people's family. That really for all of us, whether they are good dynamics or bad dynamics, healthy dynamics or pretty unhealthy dynamics, we're, we're raised in a particular family and we bring all of the, the habits and the hang-ups, the good, bad, and ugly, everything that we were raised with, that creates a culture within us and we live that culture in all of our relationships. We live that in our marriages, right? We bring that into our marriages. We bring that in how we rear our kids. We bring that to churches and how we relate to one another. We bring that to school and workplace and all of that. And a lot of those things, they can be healthy. Our parents could have really done some good work with us, right? Sometimes, oftentimes, very unhealthy. Last week, we talked about the culture of family and how really when you marry that you bring a particular culture. Kendra and I um, really realized that as we were seeking to blend our family together and we were bringing, I was bringing two kids and she was bringing one child into this family and we realized, remember the, the grace and truth matrix, some of you from last uh, we, we realized that I was kind of that grace first and then bring in truth later. So I really liked that cozy quadrant. That was what I was raised in, and I, and I brought that. But Kendra was different. She was truth first, and then she would bring in the grace. 
And we realize, boy, we really need to not just do one with the other, but we need to blend that together for that empowerment. And in fact, that was life-giving for us because we could say, boy, maybe there's some things that are more cozy in my parenting and not. And we realize that we actually parent different. And how we blend that together is really crucial. We, we realized even in the small things, there was a culture. For example, just a, a mini example, we were at the dinner table, and uh, it, this was before we were married, and all three kids were there, and Paige, um, my stepdaughter now, she was there very young, and I said, Paige, we have to come up with a nickname for you, because we have nicknames for one another and joke around. I said, you know what? I think I've decided on one. I think I will call you Doofenshmirtz from this point forward. And Luke laughed, and Cambria laughed, and Kendra laughed, and Paige went, ah! and she ran from the dinner table. And I thought, huh, she probably thinks I'm serious that we're really going to call her Doofenshmirtz for the rest of her life, and that was no good. It was a culture of my awkward humor that she hadn't had to learn yet, and she's doing a great job with it, by the way, now giving it back to me. And so... But this blending of, and we've had to work hard at looking at those dynamics that we bring and saying, God, how do we live well into this? And it's hard. Great resource for blended families uh, called Smart Step Families by Ron Deal is the author. And Kendra and I were reading that about a blended family. And honestly, I had to put it down because of how hard it was saying it is to blend a family. We thought, we love Jesus, we'll be okay. It proved to be that hard. But here's the good news. The good news is, is that the Father is for you and for your marriages and for your families. That the Father cares about the words that you say to one another. He cares about the way in which you relate to one another, the way that you love one another and forgive one another and express kindness to one another, that our Father, though He is a great and big and awesome God, He knows you and He knows the culture of your family and He wants to form and shape you and He wants you to be a good wife, a good husband, a good father and mother. He wants you to live well in the life-giving relationships at work and at church in all those circumstances. And even though it's a challenge, even though it's difficult, He says, I'm for you and I will give you resources to help you live this well in a way that honors and glorifies me. The kind of family, the kind of church, the kind of relationships that you were meant to have, that you're born for. And that's what this series is about, is looking at these relational dynamics and saying, God, thank you for being for me. Help me live in this circumstance better than this family we're seeing in Scripture. All right? Let's Let's finish the story of the stealing of the blessing. Remember, it's Isaac, the father, going to bless Esau. 
He says, go get, prepare a meal. I'll give you my blessing. Rebecca, the wife, she hears this and she tells her favored younger son, Jacob, to sneak in there and bring a meal. She prepares the meal and he gets it to his father, disguises himself. His father can't see, he's blind. The father gives the family blessing and Jacob leaves. But Esau comes back in from the field, starting in uh, Genesis 27, verse 30. It says, After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting, verse 31. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered. Your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently. He's realizing that his son, his youngest son, had deceived him. Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came in and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took, really stole, your blessing. Verse 36. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? It means to grasp at the heel. That's what Jacob, as they came out of Rebekah's womb, Esau came first. Jacob came grasping the heel. This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he has taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me, father? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him Lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants. And I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Some would argue, historians, that even today, we're living this broken blessing and curse between these two brothers. Verse 41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. It means he will die soon and will mourn soon. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. 
When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban and Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother's brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both you, both of you in one day, her favored son and her husband? Quite a powerful story, isn't it? We see these really incredibly unhealthy relationships being played out in living color before us. And again, as I mentioned last week, sometimes scripture doesn't hold up the model of a person and says, do that right. Right? Right? Like they did it, they modeled, well, yes. Sometimes the power of scripture is we see how the people of scripture did it so poorly and in such a broken way. And so what the Spirit is saying is, don't do that. That's not good. That's not healthy. That's broken. And so what are the, some of the things, what, the family principles from this story that we can glean? I would say one is profoundly glaring. It is like just all over the pages of the scripture. And in fact, it, it's a principle for all of life, not just families, but in everything. And it's, and it's very clear. And yet there's something in our human nature that wants to live in denial of this principle. And here's the family principle, it's this. What you sow is what you will reap. If you look in your bulletins, you'll see there that first principle, what you sow is what you reap. In your family, in your workplace, in your church, in your relationship with your, with your kids, with your siblings, with your parents, what you sow, not what others sow, what you sow is what you will reap. The Apostle Paul puts it very plainly like this in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. What he's saying there in spiritual terms, if you're reaping, if you're sowing unhealthy stuff in your spiritual life, in your thought life, in your personal life, guess what that reaps? Destruction, distance from God, broken fellowship with God. From your flesh will you reap destruction, but whoever sows to please the Spirit if you're sowing fruit of the Spirit, like love and kindness and goodness from the Spirit, you will reap eternal life or true life or real life or kingdom life, the, the life that God has for you. Friends, this principle is not rocket science, right? It's really clear, really clear, and, but, and yet we seem to deny this principle. When I was working in schools with high school students and I was doing some counseling in schools and social work, this was the principle that I would talk all the time. I'd say this question, is what you're doing, we know what you want, is what you're doing getting you what you want? And nine times out of the 10, the answer was 
No. It was just uh, connecting the dots with some of these folks of saying, listen, if you do this, this is going to affect in really negative ways your life. I think we see that especially in Rebecca. In in the earlier part of the story that we read last week, I, I would call it a moment of clarity that Jacob had where Rebecca is putting together this plan to deceive Um, Isaac and Esau, and a moment of clarity, Jacob goes, you know, this might not go so well, right? There might be ramifications. I might get a curse instead of a blessing. Jacob was going, let's put two and two. And scripture says he scarcely left the presence of his father, and Esau walks right in. No wonder Esau is plotting for the death of his brother. See, that's, that's the fruit of the seeds that they were planting. So here's the question I think this brings up. What are the seeds that you are planting in your relationships? Are you planting good seeds, Christ-centered seeds, or broken seeds, unhealthy seeds? If you were to ask those closest to you, your kids, your spouse, your friends, are you sowing things like blessing and kindness and mercy and forgiveness? Or are you sowing things like fear, anger, frustration? Whatever Whatever those seeds are, do you know there is a fruitfulness, there's a fruition, there's a blossoming of those seeds that you're sowing in to all of your relationships, your workplace. What are the seeds that you're sowing into the job you do and the people that you work with? Do you know that will come to fruition someday in some way, shape, or form. That's how it works. I have a dear friend. He's younger, and he's engaged to get married. He's going to be married in about nine months. And uh, the um, he has decided that he is not going to invite his father to his wedding. He's in a broken relationship with him. And the whole family is encouraging him, hey, come on, that just this is an important day. It's the only time. Invite him. And you know his father, I know his father. His father was filled with anger. Almost every day he poured angst and judgment. His father was harsh and not very loving to my friend. And his friend, his perspective still is as there is no way I'm going to invite that jerk to the most important part, uh, important day of my, my life. And quite honestly, I, as, a, as a pastor, he doesn't attend this, this church, but I know I need to shepherd some of that forgiveness and bitterness, but I see it. I feel for his dad, but all of those seeds have come to fruition And his dad wants to be at his wedding, but there's a lot there. And I don't know if my friend's ready to work through that. 
the harsh fruit of that relationship. Some of you might recall there's a, a president who made national news of a Christian university and he blogged the story about one of his students at the Christian university. They had, were coming out of chapel and the student was upset and wanted the president to address something along these lines um, that he was made to feel uncomfortable during the chapel message. It was a message on 1 Corinthians and love. And the student was uncomfortable because he felt like after that message, he wasn't loving very well. And the president of the university, he said, um, I, I think from where I'm from, we used to call that a, a, a come to Jesus moment. That's called conviction. That's called God is challenging you. In fact, making you uncomfortable. He said, this might not be the right university for you because our vision is not that we'd become a daycare, but that we would challenge you at every level and cause you to be uncomfortable. In fact, this made national news. He says, I'm not making this up. It's really, I won't give you the student's name. But that, and then he, he goes as far as to say that um, we are raising a generation of folks that are self-absorbed and even narcissistic. He says, don't look at the university and say, what's going on? What are you doing there? He says, look at our culture and look at the seeds that we've been sowing into our kids going up and we're not challenging. We're raising them to be self-absorbed and narcissistic and selfish and we need to change that. Do you see the, the fruition that, that there is a there is a culture of our country. There's a culture of our families. And we need to ask that question, what are we sowing into our relationships, the lives of our children, the lives of our spouses, the community of faith? Now, the second family principle is directly related to the first. First is what we sow, is what we reap. And the second is this. It's do good by your brothers and sisters. Do right by them. In fact, the very same Galatians passage, Galatians 6, Paul goes on to say this. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Do you see that connection there? He's saying... He's saying, what you sow is what you reap. And so as Christians, we're called to sow what is good, what is right in every relationship. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Between Esau and Jacob, there was almost no doing right by one another, right? There's not even a single verse in, in that entire chapter where we see them seeking to do right by their brothers. And Paul is saying that is exactly the opposite. You're called to do good, to sow seeds of goodness, of grace, of mercy into those relationships. Now, the immediate objection is this. Well, what about those, really, that, those people that have hurt us deeply? 
and they do not deserve for me to be kind to them. They do not, some of you, you have some of those people in your life. I have some of those people in my life, right? They don't deserve, right? What do you do with that? Here's the Christian principle. The world reacts to how we're treated by people. From a Christian perspective, God says, no, I don't want you to that reaction. This is where you base your relationship. How you have been treated by the Father is how you are to treat others, regardless of what they're doing here. If you, as you have experienced the love of the Father, as you have experienced the kindness of the Father to you, that that relationship here is meant to fill you up and that flows into every single relationship that you have. We get our cues from our relationship with the Father. As He has forgiven you, as He has granted blessing and favor on you so that fills you up and that flows to others in your life. Would you think for a moment, most of us have siblings, brothers and sisters. Would you think for a moment about those relationships or some of us who are from a single, we're single uh, kids, would you think about close friends? Are you doing right by them? Pastor, you don't know my brother. He has done God-awful things. We're not talking about them. We're talking about you. How you live into those relationships. Are you doing right by your brother and sister? Are you taking your cues from the Father in heaven and how he's treated you, are you allowing that to flow into every other relationship, especially those, the family of Christ, especially your brothers and sisters? Friends, I think this is, this is spiritual formation. This is maturity. This is where we're getting back just treating one another as the world treats one another. We're, we're not taking our cues from the world. We're taking our cues from the principles of Scripture. And we're learning. We're allowing the Spirit of God to shape and mold those relationships. I was trying to think of a, a, a public relationship between siblings that was actually a positive example that uh, many of us could relate for with. And I, I was really struggling to find an example of that. And yet I, I did find one person, uh, or, or two brothers actually, Peyton Manning. Did we miss Peyton Manning as Broncos fans? Yes to this. We did miss Peyton Manning, right? Do you ever pay attention to his relationship with Eli, his younger brother? That... Um, when Eli was drafted, of course, Peyton was still in the NFL. Eli was drafted number one, and they did an interview. Peyton interviewed his younger brother, Eli, and he asked all the generic questions. And then he asked, so Eli, it's been said that you think you're much better looking than your older brother. Is that true? 
And Eli, you know, is going, and he says, and it's been said that you think you're more athletically, you're superior to your older brother. Is that true as well? And they were laughing and so forth and then sent it back. And then over the course of their careers, when they would play Super Bowls, they would be interviewed, and you could see the genuine love and commitment and care for one another. Of course, there was friendly sibling rivalry, but they really were for one another. They were advocating for one another. They were even giving advice on how to tackle the other team's defense on that. They were for one another. You know, if you spend any time around broken kids, you'll realize that it is human nature that all of us need at least that one person that is for us. Even, I was working with foster kids, even when the parents are out of the picture and there's a broken circumstance, there was oftentimes this older sibling, like sometimes a seven-year-old compared to a five-year-old, but that five-year-old was okay because that seven-year-old was for that younger brother or sister. That it's human nature. We need that person in our lives that is for us, that is rooting for us, that's showing kindness even when we don't deserve it. It's the family that should be that place. And it's the church that should be that place as well. So often the church is more judgmental than anything, is more critical than anything. It shouldn't be that way. We should be for one another, for the gifts that God has placed and wants to call out, for the life and relationship that God wants to work in and grow and heal. Are you for your brothers and sisters? Are you doing good in those relationships and circumstances? All right, principle number three. This principle, I think, unfortunately, again, is illustrated painfully through Esau and Jacob. But I would say this, quite simply, don't quit on your family. Don't quit. Don't give up. Press in. Fight for your family. Esau, he doesn't just quit on Jacob. He, he's going to kill him, right? Now, we usually don't go to that extremes. But would you agree with me that there, part of our human nature is when things get tough, when things get challenging, what do we do? We bail. We quit. We quit on one another. In all different circumstances, sometimes it's career, and workplace, we quit. Sometimes it's marriages, we quit. Sometimes it's friendships. Sometimes it's churches. In all these circumstances, we face that difficult moment and we quit. With my kids, oftentimes, when they want to do an extracurricular activity that's beyond that, I say, all right, but if you're going to make this commitment, you finish the year. That, that's the value that we have. Now, there's some exceptions sometimes, but almost inevitably in everything that they do, they face a moment of chance. I don't like the coach, Dad. I don't, I don't like this circumstance. There, there's some circumstance that they're bringing and they're tempted to quit. 
And I say, okay, all right, let's push through, finish the commitment, finish the year, and then we'll reevaluate. I'm trying to push against that, that propensity to quit. I was reading a, a, a funny, funny article in Huffington Post where they listed 17 reasons people had given for breaking off a relationship, and they said 17 reasons that will make you weep for humanity. And I'm like, I have to read this article. And I'm not going to read all 17. I'm just going to read just three of them. One was someone had, was their relationship was broken off because they said, I love you and won't be able to bear if I lose you. Before that happened, let's break up. That was one. Not necessarily a positive commitment there. Number two was, uh, you're spending too much time with your dying father. I'm out. It's horrible, right? Now, this third one, this is somewhat reasonable. third one is, I like bacon, you don't like bacon, we're done. (laughs) You need to have standards, right, in in relationships? I mean, that's, that's there. What's it mean to fight for being committed to one another? When Scripture says, bear with one another. How do we live that out? I want to give you two reasons to press against our propensity to quit and bail. One reason is this, that oftentimes when you quit, you're hurting someone. Whether it's a coach, whether it's a director, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a spouse, there's, you're hurting someone. And our our primary calling in our relationships with one another, well, first and foremost, love God with everything you've got. And the second most important commandment is what? Love your neighbor. Love one another. Love your enemy. So, so often when we're breaking that commitment, it's, it's hurting someone. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is stick it out is fight, is hang in there for as long as possible. And sometimes, in some circumstances, the most unloving thing you can do is bail. Second reason that I encourage my kids and I think we should push against this propensity to quit is that so often... God is going to work in every circumstance in our life, but so often his most profound character work is during those times of difficulty and pain and struggle, during those times when we're most likely to say, you know what, I think I'm done. Friends, I I think some of us are not growing spiritually, are not experiencing spiritual formation, and you know why? Why? Because right at the moment when the Spirit of God wants to form and shape our character in this particular relationship or circumstance, we're like, I'm out. And we go on to the next commitment or church or relationship or whatever that is. And I think so often, God is, 
No, stay in there. There's lessons that we can learn when we're struggling with angst that we just can't learn when things are good, when we're not experiencing frustration and difficulty and pain. And he's saying, no, 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 I'm with you, I'm for you. And the most important thing about you is your soul and that you'd be made in the image of my son. So stick it out. Listen, pray harder. Seek me more. I will speak into that circumstance. Sometimes the best thing to do is fight and not quit. But I included this, this final principle that is a little bit contrary to the third principle that I said. But I think it's important. It's not really from the story. So this is an extra principle, but I'm not charging extra for the sermon. We're not going to take another offering here. But I think this principle balances this out. And it's this final one that says, sometimes we are called to let go and move on. And yet, in those circumstances, we're always called to hold on to hope for that other individual. Over my time in ministry, I've talked with a lot of people, especially in struggling marriages. And the circumstances are always different and unique, and I try and be sensitive to those different circumstances and yet still apply the the biblical principles uh, to those marriages. Sometimes I feel like the Lord is challenging them to fight and stay committed and fight. And sometimes that's the, the word of the Holy Spirit. But there's other circumstances when I see it, when I have a an equally hard conversation. And I say, you know, in reality, it takes two to make a marriage, but only one to break a marriage. And sometimes we have to let go. I see the commitment. I see the fight. I see the longing in that person's life. And yet, because of the actions of the other person, it's, it's time to let go. And it's those times that we flip that switch in our heart and yet we always give up, give hope that that person will be healed and made whole and living a better life than what, how we've experienced them. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a sensitive subject, but I felt like we wanted to share that. In fact, there's a, a very difficult passage that I really... I, I really wrestled with whether to share this passage or not, but the context is is pretty significant brokenness happening in the community of faith. And this sin that was being uh, lived out in the community of faith was not being challenged. It was being celebrated. And so Paul says this. He says, So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present... Hand this man over to Satan. Yikes. Yikes. What does that mean? Now, it's very, very harsh. There's a release. There's a letting go. And yet Paul goes on and and hear his intent. 
hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. What's Paul's intent there? He's hoping for the salvation of that broken individual. He's saying sometimes you need to release and let go. I was talking with a with a friend and he was wrestling with the sibling that had done pretty harsh and hurtful things to him. And he had let go. He had let go. And yet over the course of discussion, he said, you know, if my sister were to come back with humility, say, I see it. I see how I've been living in denial, how I've sowed lies and deception and all of that. He said, I would take them back into my home in a second. I can bless that. You see that? That individual had still not given up hope on that sibling. Had released that sibling. Yet hoping, still hoping, still praying for the love of the Father to transform his broken sister. Can we pray together? Would you just take a moment just with your eyes closed? Would you listen for the voice, the still small voice of the Holy Spirit? What is he saying to you? How is he trying to shape your soul and your relationships? And sometimes spiritual formation is just these little incremental changes in how we treat one another. Maybe there's some unhealthy seeds that you're sowing into some very important relationships in your life. Need to stop. Stop justifying. Stop responding and reacting. Allow the Holy Spirit to determine the seeds that you sow. For some of us, we realize we're not doing right by some important relationships. We're not doing good by some of those folks. beautiful news is remember that the Father's for you. It's not about shame. It's not about condemnation. There's therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. This is about healing and growth, forgiveness. If we confess those things, he's faithful to heal and restore and renew. Just take a a few seconds to respond to whatever the Spirit is saying.